What's wrong with black people and the police? A Trump stalwart in Congress is investigated for sexual trafficking by the Trump Department of Justice. And Mayor de Blasio hails the state legislators vote to legalize pot. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, March 31st, 2021. The convenience store cashier who sold cigarettes to George Floyd and was handed a counterfeit $20 bill in return took the stand Wednesday as Officer Derek Chauvin's murder trial. Christopher Martin, 19, said that as he stood on the curb a short time later, his hands on his head, he watched Floyd's arrest. He felt disbelief and guilt. If I would have just not taken the bill, this could have been avoided, Martin testified, joining the burgeoning list of onlookers who said they felt a sense of helplessness and lingering guilt over the black man's death last May. Prosecutors also played store security footage showing Floyd and Cup Foods for about 10 minutes, adding to the mountain of video documenting what happened. Martin said he initially planned to just put the bill on his tab, but then second-guessed himself and told the manager who sent Martin outside to ask Floyd to return to the store. Floyd was later arrested outside where Chauvin pinned his knee on his neck for what prosecutors said was nine minutes, 29 seconds, as a handcuffed Floyd lay face down on the pavement. Floyd, 46, was later pronounced dead at a hospital. Martin said he didn't think George Floyd knew the $20 bill was counterfeit. And so you made the decision after Mr. Floyd handed you this counterfeit $20 bill um, that you weren't going to call him out on it like you did with the earlier bill. Correct. And um, was that in part because you felt maybe he's under the influence? Partially. Partially. Um, the other person that had come in, it kind of seemed like he was trying to scheme, like he knew it was a fake bill and he was trying to get over. I thought that George didn't really know that it was a fake bill, so I thought I'd be doing him a favor. Okay. Try to help him, trying to help him out. Another witness, 61-year-old Charles McMillan, was the first bystander to come across the scene as officers were attempting to force Floyd into their vehicle. After hearing himself on tape pleading with Floyd to accept the arrest and then hearing him cry for his mother, McMillan broke down sobbing. Uh, I, I told you, man, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Please, man. Please well, listen, listen, to me. Is he going to jail? He's under arrest right now for forgery. Okay. Okay. Tell me what? what's going on. For what? For what? Please, man. I can't fucking breathe. Hey, come on out. Look at you. Thank you. Thank you. Get him on the ground. Get on the ground. On the ground. Ah, my knees. Jesus. I can't breathe. Stop moving. Mama. 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 One of the front pouches. Mama. On my right side bag. Mama. Mama. The video clip ended and the scene returned to the courtroom where McMillan sobbed, expressing his grief before a recess was called in the trial. Oh my God. I'll just give you a moment, Mr. McDonough. I'm not sure if there's water as well. If you need a break to get some water, let me know. And we can take a break. Yeah. I know that this is difficult. Can you just explain sort of what you're feeling in this moment? I can I feel helpless. 
I don't have a mama either. Can I just stand him? My mom died June 25th. Hang on just one second, Mr. Let's, uh, let's take a 10-minute break. Charles McMillan was the first bystander to come across the scene. Yesterday, a Minneapolis firefighter wept as she recalled being prevented from using her EMT training to help Floyd. She recounted how she was unable to come to Floyd's aid or tell police what to do, such as administering chest compressions. There was a man being killed, said Hansen, who testified in her dress uniform and detailed her emergency medical technician training. I would have been able to provide medical attention to the best of my abilities, and this human was denied that right. Attorney Ron Kuby has been practicing law in New York City for decades. He and his former partner, William Kunstler, provided counsel to hundreds of victims of police brutality. He says it boils down to the race of the victim and the race of the cop. The defense theory here is as old as the Republic, which is ask white people how many innocent black people should die in order to keep you safe. And a number of white people will say, well, whatever it takes, whatever is necessary to protect me, you just do what you guys have to do. Which is why the defense is trying to make the crowd seem menacing, which is why later on in the case, the defense is going to try to make George Floyd seem menacing and high and noncompliant and violent and all of those other things. Because no matter how the ultimate jury shakes out, at least half of it will be white. And all you need to hang that jury is one person. And you have a hung jury, and I I recognize that, you know, the defense would prefer an acquittal. But they're not going to get a a flat-out acquittal here. Their best hope is a hung jury. And look, a hung jury in some ways is as good as an acquittal. It just doesn't last as long. The criminal justice system, case by case, is not set up to deliver those messages and to enact those reforms. Most of us who have watched killer cop cases for a very, very long time. We just say, well, okay, what will it take to convict one of these cops of murder? We've now got nine minutes and 29 seconds of an actual murder being filmed frame by frame. Is that enough? If not, Do we have to have a confession from the cop that he intended to murder? If that's not enough, just just what does it actually take to put one of these killers behind bars? The police, their authority is to act as the physical force arm, the violence arm of the state. The reality is that in every killer cop case, the cops start with an advantage that no other defendant has, a bunch of advantages. Number one is that society almost always values the lives of the cops more than than the life of the person they kill. Number two, the cops in almost every case are, are... doing their job when they're called to the scene. Third, the person who ended up dead always did something or failed to do something that resulted ultimately in their own demise. 
it's not as though George Floyd was simply walking down the street one day and caught a stray bullet from a cop who decided to, to test his firing pin. And number four, you have fundamental institutionalized racism, not specific individual racism like the jurors hate black people, although sometimes you do have that. What you have is, is white people knowing that the job of the police is to protect them from scary-looking black people. And white people want the cops to do that job. And if sometimes the cops, like, get the wrong guy or do the wrong thing, well, that's simply the price that has to be paid. The people who are saying that are never, ever, ever, ever the people who are actually paying the price. Attorney Ron Kuby and Revolutionary Communist Party spokesperson Carl Dick says he's hoping for a guilty verdict, but he adds at least since the 1992 beating of Rodney King in Los Angeles, where the officers, despite tons of video footage, were acquitted, he's known conviction is not a sure thing. This is about the savage oppression of black people that has historically gone down in this country. The terror that the police randomly inflict on black people is a concentration of that terror. We also need to look at what else is going on. I mean, Georgia is leading the nation in sweeping attacks on the right of black people and other oppressed sections of people to have access to the ballot, to be able to vote. Something that takes you back to the days of Jim Crow. This trial does concentrate a lot of that. A conviction in this case and sending this cop to jail doesn't signify an end to white supremacy. I'm not saying celebrate if he gets convicted and everything is over because this stuff is baked into the fabric of this country and has been from the very beginning. But be tense and aware and act beforehand in showing the determination that this cop can't be allowed to walk and respond accordingly to whichever way the verdict comes out. The possibility of a um, of a hung jury. That is a possibility because, again, we're talking about America where there are a lot of people who will buy police lies will be influenced by the way in which the law is set up to say, well, you have to look at this from the perspective of a reasonable police officer, which basically means from the perspective of a frontline enforcer for the inequality of this system, who has been part of an institution that historically deals out brutality and even murder on black people. So the possibility of a hung jury is real, as well as the possibility of just a straight acquittal. That is possible. I mean, I remember the Rodney King case back in 1992, and going into that, I was very sure there would be a conviction because you had this video of these cops repeatedly pummeling Rodney King more than 50 times with their baton, kicking him and all of this, and they got acquitted. Since then, I have been aware that when the systems and forces are caught dealing out their crimes on black people, that does not mean they're going to get convicted and punished in any way. People who want to see white supremacy ended need to see a failure to convict this cop 
is a bold, aggressive, foul statement by this system to give up your dreams of ever getting out of a situation where white supremacy isn't being enforced in America. What should happen in the streets? You're a spokesperson for the Revolutionary Communist Party, an activist-oriented organization. The day after the verdict, people should continue and grow the activism that they've already been carrying out. And people should be in the streets. If it's a conviction, there should be a celebration of that and a determination to go further because at the same time that this cop is on trial for murdering George Floyd, you have heard that no one is going to be charged for shooting Jacob Blake in the back in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Brianna Taylor's killers are still going free. Celebrate, but carry forward on the fight to end this. The role of the police is to enforce the unequal relations in society. You got to not just try to win case by case, but try to get rid of the system that has the police out there. And if it's an acquittal or, frankly, a hung jury, people need to be outraged and express that outrage all across the country not as a one-shot thing and then go home and say, well, we've let off steam, but to carry the fight forward. We need revolution, nothing less, to end all of this. Revolutionary Communist Party spokesperson Carl Dix. In Minneapolis, Chauvin attorney Eric Nelson sought to show the onlookers were agitated and the police were distracted by what they perceived as a growing and increasingly hostile crowd. But witnesses testified that no bystanders interfered with police. In more national news, a Georgia State Patrol officer who arrested Democratic State Representative Park Cannon last week when she protested the governor's signing of a law that restricts voting said the January 6th attack on the Capitol was in the back of my mind during the incident. Cannon had been knocking on Republican Governor Brian Kemp's office door where he was signing the law. The officer says he noticed the other protesters began to get louder as she was refusing to follow commands. The incident was videotaped. The governor is signing a bill that affects all Georgians. Why is he doing it in private? And why is he trying to keep elected officials who are representing us out exactly. of the process? Exactly. Are you serious? No, you oh, are not. Represent. No. She's not under arrest. What for what? Under arrest for what? For trying to see something that our governor is doing? Why are you arresting her? Give me a reason. Why are you arresting her? And that was some video from the event last week where Representative Cannon was arrested as she knocked on the door where a bill limiting voting rights was being signed by the Republican governor of Georgia. The video also shows Cannon being handcuffed and led away. Cannon's attorney, Gerald Griggs, called the officer's statement a false equivalence. The facts, videos, and witnesses are inconsistent with the allegations made in the police report, he wrote. She was let out on a $6,000 signature bond, and she said later on Twitter, I'm not the first Georgian to be arrested for fighting voter suppression. I'd love to say I'm the last, but we know that isn't true. She plans to return to the Capitol in Atlanta on Monday. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. The New York Times reported last night Representative Matt Gates, a Florida Republican and close ally of former President Donald Trump, is being investigated by the Justice Department for violating federal sex trafficking laws. And if he had a sexual relationship with a 17-year-old girl and paid for her to travel with him. 
The investigation was opened in the final months of the Trump administration under Attorney General William Barr, who was appointed by Trump. It's part of a broader investigation into a political ally of Gates, a local official in Florida named Joel Greenberg, who was indicted last summer on sex trafficking and other offenses involving underage women. Gates called the investigation part of an elaborate scheme involving false sex allegations to extort him and his family for $25 million. Hours after the Times report, Gates appeared on the Tucker Carlson program. Carlson is a conservative Fox News host. Live on air, Gates shocked the host by implicating him. Actually, you and I went to dinner uh, about two years ago. Your wife was there, and I brought a friend of mine. You'll remember her. And she was actually threatened by the FBI, told that if she wouldn't cop to the fact that somehow I was involved in some pay-for-play scheme, uh, that she could face trouble. And so uh, I do believe that there are people at the Department of Justice who are trying to smear me, uh, you know, providing for flights uh, and hotel rooms for people that you're dating who are of legal age is not a crime. Uh, and I'm just troubled that the lack of any sort of legitimate investigation into me would then permute, would then convert into this extortion attempt. I, I, I don't remember the, the woman you're speaking of or the context at all, honestly. After the interview, Carlson made a statement of his own. If you just saw our Matt Gates interview, that was one of the weirdest interviews I've ever conducted. That story just appeared in the news a couple of hours ago. And on the certainty that there's always more than you read in the newspaper, we immediately called Matt Gates and asked him to come on and tell us more, which, as you saw, he did. I don't think that clarified much, uh, but it certainly showed this is a deeply interesting story, and we'll be, we'll be following it. Don't quite understand it, but we'll bring you more when we find out. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy said he's waiting to meet Gates. There's a New York Times story that I read. I haven't been able to talk to Mr. Gates yet. Mr. Gates denies the story, but I look forward to talking to Mr. Gates. Uh, I haven't heard anything from the DOJ or others, but I will deal with it um, if any of it comes to be true. McCarthy says if the accusations are true, Gates would be removed from his committee positions. And a bill legalizing marijuana and cannabis products in New York was signed into law this morning by Governor Andrew Cuomo, cementing a milestone victory for advocates who had sought the measure over the last several years. The measure will usher in what is expected to be a multi-billion dollar market in the coming years and makes New York the latest state to legalize adult use marijuana for those over the age of 21. Fifteen other states have approved similar adult use laws. Mayor de Blasio cheered the bill signing today. The city of New York put out a report delineating the kinds of things that would be necessary to do legalization the right way. And that included making sure that the economic opportunities that would come would focus on the communities that were most harmed by the previous drug laws, that there would be actually an economic benefit to folks who had suffered the most. This legislation goes a long way to achieving that. Also, a focus on ensuring that the mistakes of the past uh, the convictions that held back so many people for very small offenses, that those would be expunged. And a focus on investment in communities that have suffered and ensuring that this is part of their economic rebirth. A lot of good in this legislation. Mayor de Blasio, a reporter, echoed critics of the bill who say it'll lead to young people using pot and driving while smoking weed. But de Blasio says the problems of making marijuana illegal are worse. And after checking with big cities that have already legalized cannabis, he feels it's a decision to be made. 
At least some of the worst things that came with the previous laws were being addressed in the sense of getting rid of the negative impact on people's lives from harsh sentences, expunging those sentences, offering some economic opportunity to communities that didn't have enough. Again, some revenue that was going to the public sector for health and safety rather than just flowing illicitly. I do understand the concern, truly. Help people be their best selves and be safe. That's a hell of a lot better than having it be a shadow economy and think that that's going to work for us. Mayor de Blasio. And finally, G. Gordon Liddy, the undercover operative whose bungling of the Watergate break-in triggered one of the gravest constitutional crises in American history and led to the resignation of President Richard M. Nixon, died March 30th at his daughter's home in Fairfax County, Virginia. He was 90. Former Washington Post reporter Jefferson Morley is writing a book on Watergate. He joined WBAI today to say Liddy was a man of his times. He was a very gung-ho guy. Um, and, uh, you know, in the, in the Watergate era, he was, um, as, as Watergate prosecutor Earl Silbert said, Liddy was living high, wide, and handsome. You know, he was, he was living the part of this, you know, political spook to the max, going to five-star hotels, chasing women, spying on people, breaking the law. You know, he was really... Uh, you know, out there. And then the whole thing came crashing down when they got arrested at the Watergate. One of his main claims to fame was taking down Timothy Leary for running an LSD club in Westchester County. He made his way as a law and order cop prosecuting drug offenders and stuff like that and talking very tough. He was ambitious. He ran for Congress as a Republican. He lost. He talked his way into the Nixon administration in the Treasury Department and took up law enforcement counter-narcotics positions, which eventually led him into more political work around Daniel Ellsberg. And so the Nixon administration is trying to stop the leak of information you know, out of the government. And so they create the, this group called the Plumbers to fix the leaks. And Liddy is part of that. And so that's when he really gets into the into the political burglary business. And so it's Liddy who, with help of Howard Hunt, formerly of the CIA, comes up with the plan to bug the Democrats, harass them, and do lots of dirty tricks. That plan that Liddy and Hunt developed led to the creation of the, the Watergate burglary team that got caught in the Watergate on June 17th, which led to the scandal and the downfall of the president. He wasn't a very yeah. successful agent. One thing, significant thing that Liddy said was he trusted these CIA guys because he thought they were pros and they weren't. The failure of the burglary was not Liddy. The failure of the burglary was really much more due to James McCord of the, of the CIA. And Liddy in Will expresses some bitterness at, at, at being betrayed by people, Hunt and, and, and the others, who, whom he, especially Hunt, whom he regarded as a friend. And, um, yeah, you know, they justified this as, you know, there was anti-violence in the anti-war movement and they were justified in doing anything to, you know, attack the enemy. That was certainly the mindset that was pervasive in the Nixon White House and, and among these people. And so these, these sorts of political dirty tricks, you know, they felt were justified. In World War II, you would understand what it meant to never snitch on people above us. Is, that, is it that kind of a sort of macho morality of that era? That was a very strong thing, and that's why these guys did obey orders. It does come from that wartime culture 
to make everybody safer, nobody talked, period. It was very ground in, especially among the men. People were much less self-expressive at that time. That's really how America changed in the 60s was self-expression became okay. In the 50s and 60s, when these guys came of age, very buttoned down, very stoic. That's Liddy holding his hand over the flame, you know, like, you know, I can take it. Became a talk show host afterwards. Did he ever address this stuff? Do you know if? He felt at the time that this was a justified national security mission. He never gave up on that. He went on tour with Timothy Leary later, and they would have this debate between the countercultural hero and this law and order guy. He wasn't a bitter person. He was an actor. He appeared in Miami Vice and other screen shows. He was a character and an actor as well as, you know, a burglar and a, and a cop. If it wasn't for Watergate, would we have heard of him? No. Anything we can learn from this for today? The Watergate scandal was a not just the, a crisis emanating from the fact that there were political burglars working out of the White House, but in the context of a much wider effort of the government to conduct domestic surveillance. The White House had the Watergate burglars, but the CIA and the NSA had vastly expanded their surveillance of Americans in the anti-war movement. It was only with the Watergate scandal that brought down a president that we began to have some control and some accountability in the intelligence agencies. It's still not very strong. Watergate forced a new era in the organization of the intelligence community. Former Washington Post reporter Jefferson Morley is writing a book on Watergate. Liddy spent more than four years in prison. His autobiography is titled Will. In it, he discusses trying to make himself strong by eating a rat and holding his hand over an open flame. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, March 31st, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.